Hey, you guys, on October the 15th, I'm doing a Defend the Guard rally in Somerset, New Jersey. Find out all about it at defendtheguard.us. All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of antiwar.com, author of the book, Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy, and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there, and the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, on the line again, I've got Colonel Douglas McGregor, retired U.S. Army, uh, the great uh, leader of the great tank battle of 73 Easting in Iraq War One, of course, and uh, author of many books about military strategy and regular writer at the American Conservative Magazine. His latest is Holding Ground, Losing War. Welcome back, Doug. How are you doing? Excellent. Good, good. Uh, happy to have you here. So listen, the big news is that, um, what, uh, 13 days ago or so, uh, right around there, the weekend of the 10th and 11th, the uh, Ukrainians made major gains in northern Luhansk, essentially there in the land adjacent to Kharkiv, and drove a somewhat minimal Russian force back there. And then in response, the Russians have now announced a partial mobilization, called up 300,000 uh, reserves, and announced a plan to hold referendums, whatever you think of them, give or take their legitimacy under occupation and wartime and what have you, obviously as a pretext or a, a first step toward annexing uh, almost all of the southern coast, at least, and up to Zephoria, which is, you know, I don't know, a quarter of the way up the Dnieper River, something like that, uh, north of Crimea and, and Kherson, northwest of Crimea there. Uh, which is almost to Odessa on my map. And so now I turn it over to you to explain what this all really means and go ahead and incorporate, if you want, all the talk in the news about the threat that the Russians might use nuclear weapons, and then the Americans will be left to decide what to do in response to that. Sure. <clears throat> well, first of all, we need to understand that uh, the area where the Ukrainians... Uh, penetrated and uh, drove to this town of Izium along the river up in the north was largely evacuated. The Russians left 2,000 paramilitary police and light infantry along a screen line. They withdrew those forces and sent them down south uh, where the Ukrainians had committed 30,000, 40,000 uh, of their troops in a, in a counterattack against Russian defenses. And they decided that, quite frankly, there was nothing up in the Kharkov area worth defending. They put the screen line there. And I think what happened very simply is that U.S. satellite-based intelligence told the Ukrainians, who had lost tens of thousands of troops in these counterattacks, you know, there's really nobody behind this screen line. And as a result, they drove through it. And uh, on the way there, when the Russians uh, figured out what was happening, they, of course, withdrew their forces. But then they caught the advancing Ukrainian force of about 14,000, 15,000 in the open. 
and uh, killed or wounded at least uh, 40% of the force with artillery strikes, rocket artillery, airstrikes, and so forth. And the Russians, uh, who hold the uh, shoulders, uh, quite frankly, decided not to be bothered with it because they had more strategic issues down south that they want to finish in the Donbass. But uh, the Russian people, uh, when they discovered this, and this was broadcast to the Russian media, were deeply offended and insulted. And they argued, why are we wasting time with these Ukrainians? What are you doing? This should never have happened. So I think that was really the catalyst for Putin's decision. The other point is that I think Putin has finally concluded that we're, we're at war with him, even though he's not necessarily at war with us. And that he has no choice now but to finish the job in eastern Ukraine, be done with it, and recognizes that we are not going to negotiate with him about anything. So he went through this partial mobilization, which is getting a lot of attention, but it's actually partial, and most of the reservists will be sent to other parts of Russia where they will relieve regular army formations, particularly in eastern Russia or Siberia. These will then be brought west. And you will end up with a substantial more formations in the West. The remaining reservists will be used to fill out other Russian army formations. You have formations fighting in uh, Ukraine that are about 70 to 80 percent strength. They'll be brought up to 100 percent strength. All of this will be done very methodically. This is not, not a rush job by any means. The Russians are not desperate. They've got everything under control. But I think the Ukrainians are really quite desperate, and that's why they've been launching these counterattacks that have cost them tens of thousands. I mean, they've been averaging about 20,000 casualties a month, and this has been going on for seven months, some months more and some months less. But the bottom line is they can't replace most of the troops that they've lost, and the people they are forcing into the front lines at gunpoint in many cases are just civilians they've been handing weapons to who have no training, who sit around and wait to be destroyed. And I think that's why uh, Mr. Zelensky has brought up this nuclear business. The Russians are certainly not interested in using a nuclear weapon anywhere in the vicinity of Russia under any circumstances. But we in Washington have been talking over the last several months, and frankly, for the last couple of years, uh, and when I say we, I'm talking about senior officers, particularly Air Force and Navy, about the use of tactical nuclear weapons in a limited nuclear war. And the Russians have always made it very clear they don't really distinguish between what we call tactical, which would be five kilotons or less, and uh, strategic nuclear weapons. And the Russians simply reminded us that if we're contemplating the use of these weapons, to bear in mind that they will respond and they will strike. Hmm. And I would expect them to strike with a very large arsenal that they have. I think I think it was an attempt to remind us that uh, Armageddon is uh, is at our beck and call if we decide to move down that road. You know, and the thing I would say, Scott, uh, in the midst of all of this, the thing that concerns me the most is this man Biden, not because of anything he thinks or does, because I don't think he's in charge. You know, I was going back uh, and looking at Joe Biden's record in the Senate in the House. And Scott, quite frankly, the man was never a warmonger. In fact, he was always lukewarm at best about the interventions. And under Obama, he was an advocate for getting out of Iraq and Afghanistan. 
So I think uh, Biden is is not driving the train. I think this is a feeble man in almost 80, and he's being taken advantage of. And I worry about the unappointed people that surround him, uh, people that uh, like Ron Klain is the chief of staff, uh, Tony Blinken. Uh, there are a whole range of individuals in, in the uh, administration uh, that are that are just not elected. They're unelected officials, and I worry about their influence and control over nuclear weapons. Yeah. Well, you know what? Let's focus on that point right there about who is really in charge, because we keep seeing Biden be overruled. He was overruled by his own White House, quote unquote, the White House, on two major points from his interview on 60 Minutes last Sunday, one of them on essentially saying the pandemic is over which they walk back because that's all their emergency powers based on that. They say, oh, right. no, he didn't mean to say that. And then he said, yes, we will put American, you know, sailors, essentially men and women, as they say, uh, on the line to defend uh, Taiwan, which is what he vowed we would not do in the case of Ukraine. We'll arm them up, but we will not be putting American boots on the ground. He has vowed in the case of Ukraine anyway. And then they said, oh, no, we didn't mean that. And they said, well, we don't mean it that we're walking him back either because that's too embarrassing to walk this back four times in a row now. So maybe we have now officially abandoned strategic ambiguity, but is it because the president went off of someone else's script and who is someone else? And if you go down the list, you mentioned Ron Klain, the chief of staff. It's an unelected position. I don't know enough about that guy. I know that from what I understand of previous presidencies, the National Security Advisor, in this case, Jake Sullivan, eh, he's only got so much sway as someone who's not really a member of the cabinet. So then that leaves Blinken, because I don't think Lloyd Austin is that ambitious that he's really running a shadow government here, is he? But is Blinken the boss? And if Blinken's the boss, who's against him fighting over? Like, what, what the hell's going on up there? We're all Kremlinologists talking about Washington, D.C. Well, you know, you're raising all the right questions, and unfortunately, I, I don't have the answers. But I do think that <clears throat> there's a lot of evidence for national security advisors wielding far more influence than, than they should. Both Brzezinski and Kissinger, at various points in time, had infinitely more influence and power over events and foreign and defense policy than any of the cabinet members, let alone members of the Senate or the House. Yeah. So I think it's a real concern. The problem is I just I just don't know what level of influence. And then, of course, you hear that Obama is frequently a visitor to the White House. Uh, I've heard people tell me, and it's being reported in the press, that uh, George Soros calls uh, directly to Biden and uh, definitely calls people in the White House and expresses his preferences. He's not the only one, and he's a major donor to all of the causes that the White House supports. So the real issue is who's in charge, who's in control, and I just don't think that Joe Biden is. Now, the thing that worries me even beyond that is this this silly notion that somehow or another you can launch a low-yield nuclear weapon at the Russians or the Chinese or anybody else, and they will all sit calmly on the other side and say, well, let's not get too excited over this because this is a small nuclear detonation. Mm -hmm. It's absurd. And yeah, by small, they mean Hiroshima-sized. Yeah, right? I mean, well, literally, yes. And the issue here that doesn't seem to dawn on people is if you're sitting in Moscow or Beijing or Tehran or anywhere else and someone uses a 
quote-unquote low-yield nuclear weapon against you, your predisposition is to say, launch everything we've got because they're afraid that if they don't do that, the next thing that comes in will be a major strike from us. So the whole whole business is a sort of courting disaster on a scale that would end civilization as we know it. And I don't understand why no one has stepped forward and said, look, this is nonsense. No more talk about it. It's not going to happen. And, you know, finally, why? Why would we ever consider the use of a nuclear weapon for anything other than deterring an attack or answering an attack against the continental United States and Hawaii? That's essentially the way the Russians and the Chinese look at the nuclear weapon. It's a guarantee of your territorial integrity, but nobody thinks in terms of using it offensively to gain some sort of battlefield advantage. Well, now, so so yesterday, and I had my wife check the translation because I didn't believe it, but according to Tas, Medvedev, the former president and head of the National Security Council there, threatened to use strategic nuclear weapons. And I think the implication here was now that they're annexing all of the, well, what, three quarters of the southern coast and up, you know, a couple of hundred miles north of there, at least, that as soon as they call that Russia, then that means any attack by Ukraine on that territory that Ukraine and obviously America will still consider occupied Ukrainian territory that they call Russia. They'll see that and claim that as an attack on the Russian Federation. And he said, we will defend that with strategic nuclear weapons. In other words, threatening to nuke D.C. and Austin, Texas, not just a battlefield nuke somewhere in Ukraine, it sounded like. Well, if you look at the stated uh, uh, policy regarding the use of nuclear weapons, it's dated uh, 22 June or no, 21 June or 20 June of uh, last year, two years ago in 2020, signed into law by uh, Putin. It makes it clear that nuclear weapons will be used exclusively and only as retaliatory weapons against a nuclear attack. So I, I, that's that's the stated policy, and I don't see any evidence that the Russians want to change that. I think Medvedev uh, is almost a sort of uh, a crazy relative in the closet that you bring out periodically to frighten people, and then uh-huh. you put them back in the closet. So I don't I, I I don't think the notion that once these areas are incorporated into Russia, and they will be clearly without a doubt, the areas are historically Russian. The majority of the people that live there are Russians who speak Russian. These are the people that uh, were furious when the Russian military came in and then announced that it would leave once negotiations had ended. They said, well, we're not going to support you because if we do, the Ukrainian secret police will come back and shoot all of us and our families in the head. And then finally, I think six weeks into this campaign, there was a realization that if we just pull out again, Uh, Most of the people that we've gone in to try and help who've been mistreated and brutalized by the Ukrainians will be back to where they were to begin with. So I think uh, at this stage of the game, uh, yes, we're going to see these areas incorporated into Russia. This is the area that Catherine the Great in the 1700s designated as New Russia and was ultimately settled by Russians. That includes Odessa the areas along the Black Sea, all of it. Remember, 1776, when we began our revolution or war for independence, was the year that Crimea was taken by the Russians. And that put an end to the uh, unending Tartar-Mongol 
incursions into southern Russia and Ukraine, where they took slaves to be sold in the slave markets of Constantinople. So, yes, they'll be incorporated. But the notion that uh, the Russians would respond to anything we did instantaneously with a nuclear weapon is nonsense. They will only use a nuclear weapon if we use one against them. Yeah. It's very simple. Sorry, hang on just one second. Hey, guys, anybody who signs up to listen to this show by way of Patreon will be invited to join the Reddit group. And I'm going to start posting stuff over there more. That's patreon.com slash Scott Horton Show. Thanks. Hey, y'all, libertasbella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great Top Lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. Libertas Bella, from the same great folks who bring you ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's libertasbella.com. You guys, check it out. This is so cool. The great Mike Swanson's new book is finally out. He's been working on this thing for years. And I admit, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to get to it as soon as I can. But I know you guys are going to want to beat me to it. It's called Why the Vietnam War? Nuclear Bombs and Nation Building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 61. And as he explains on the back here, all of our popular culture and our retellings and our history and our movies are all about the height of the American war there in, say, 1964 through 1974. But how do we get there? Why is this all Harry Truman's fault? Find out in Why the Vietnam War by the great Mike Swanson, available now. And by the way, on that one point about Medvedev, um, I guess that's my understanding, too, is that which is kind of strange compared to, you know, the character that he tried to cut when he was the president. Uh, he does seem to play that kind of crazy uncle role. And then I guess there's a question of whether, you know, he's sort of out over his skis or out over Putin's skis and Putin would wish he would shut up. Or that's his designated role is to go out there and say the craziest thing in order well, to make Putin that, look a little more reasonable. During, yeah, we know during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis that uh, the Russians paid, uh, or then the Soviet government paid careful attention to Curtis LeMay. Curtis LeMay was viewed as a very serious uh, strategic player. He was not just chief of staff of the Air Force. This is the man that built the Strategic Air Command and controlled most of the nuclear weapons in the U.S. arsenal at the time. So I think uh, Kennedy made it abundantly clear that we were not going to use nuclear weapons, but he always had LeMay there at his side as a sure deterrent to the Soviets who might think we weren't serious. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. So I, anyway, I, I wouldn't pay too much attention to that. The other thing is that we've just had a prisoner exchange between the uh, Russians and Ukrainians and large numbers of the Azov Battalion, uh, which is this neo-Nazi organization that the Ukrainians fielded that is guilty of all sorts of war crimes. Uh, and large numbers of them were traded for Russian troops. And people were shocked by all of this and said, why would Putin do such a thing? But I think Putin has always been very concerned from the very beginning that he tried to end this in a way that you would end it on terms that both sides could accept. And that's something Americans don't think about a great deal. And that's yeah, one of no, the reasons. We're unconditional why, surrender all the way. Yeah, yeah, it's just crazy nonsense. There's no future for that. And I think he's held back a great deal. I mean, he's exercised tremendous restraint. I know that his 
military commanders from the sources that I have were very unhappy with the way he shaped the operation on the way into Ukraine. And they have been upset with his extreme restraint in the use of force uh, against the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm a, I'm a little concerned that at this point uh, we may see more violence than we would have liked. Uh, but I think uh, Putin is under great pressure at home to bring this to an end. He's tried very hard to negotiate an end to it, but he knows that we will not permit this conflict to end. We even have that on record in a statement from Biden, and we have the same thing from that uh, uh, buffoon uh, Boris Johnson when he was there from London. Mm -hmm. Well, and now, so this is a huge part of what's going on here, right, is the American side is so confident. I just saw the new uh, podcast on uh, the New York Times website is the former CIA agent talking about how Russia is losing this war badly and everything's going great and we just need to send <laughs> some more weapons in. And sounds to me like they're, you know, smoking their own BS here and believe it. Um, oh, yeah. And then yeah. and now Mearsheimer had written this thing, I think, for Foreign Affairs, saying he really was concerned about nuclear war. And his simple syllogism was that obviously the Russians aren't backing down and they do have the conventional might to take whatever territory they want over right. whatever period of time, eventually they will win. But then on the other side, the Americans absolutely will not accept that. They are absolutely determined to win. And when they start losing bad enough, the pressure is going to be on Biden to send in the Marines. And at that yeah. point, we got NATO and led by the USA in a real war with Russia right on their border. And that was a concern enough of his that he wrote it and foreign affairs published it. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I have trouble with the assertion that we will then commit U.S. forces. First of all, our ground forces are not in shape to take anybody on. And if you look at the distances <clears throat> that would have to be covered, we don't have the logistical infrastructure in place. Yeah, but what what's reality what got to do with it? Done. Politics says that if the Ukrainian government falls apart, America has to do something. Are we going to give up? I think what will happen is uh, the sort of thing that we've gone through in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. When it becomes clear that we're finished and we can do no more damage or no, achieve nothing, uh, Scott, what do we do? We leave. Mm -hmm. And when we leave, we tend to change the uh, discussion topic. Yeah. We tell, we tell the media, stop talking about this. Here's your new topic. Right. The other thing is FDR in 1938-39 was approached several times by Churchill saying, you've got to come in, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And FDR said, look, I will not bring the United States into any conflict uh, unless we ourselves are attacked. He said, the American people won't support it. The American people, as you and I both know, Scott, are paying very little attention to what's going on in Ukraine. But if all of a sudden the president announces that he's going to commit forces uh, to Eastern Europe, on a front that's uh, perhaps 800 to 1,000 miles wide and easily 500, 600 miles deep, then he's going to get a lot of attention yeah. because we really can't do that. And if we do it, we're going to lose. And Biden and again, has said from the beginning, earlier right? statements, you know, people yeah. have mistaken Putin's determination to exercise restraint for weakness. It's not the case. Russia has not marshaled its resources. And, and here's the final thing. We have winter coming. Uh -huh. Winter is already doing enormous damage uh, in Eastern Europe. 
in Germany, wood is openly referred to as the new gold. Yeah, I saw that. People, I, I've, I've gotten comments from friends in Karlsruhe in southern Germany, up in the north and near Hanover. People don't have gas. They they don't have enough to heat their homes. They're tr- they're having trouble heating water. Uh, the Germans are buying up firewood, thinking that they're going to be stuck trying to heat themselves all through the winter with firewood. Uh, it's a disaster. This this is. And frankly, the Russians don't have to do anything except sit and wait. Yeah. Now, um, uh, one last thing here at the end. I don't want to hear what you have to say about this, but I got to ask. You're pretty sure that Odessa is next on the chopping block here, huh? I am. Yeah, I think so. Because now it's become obvious that no one will negotiate. So he might as well turn Ukraine into a landlocked country. Yeah. And then they got that breakaway province that uh, Transnistria or yes. Transdenista or whatever they're calling it this year there on the Moldovan border with Ukraine. So once you take Odessa, Russians. you might as well go all the way there, right? Yeah, I think what you will have then is essentially uh, a belt that becomes Russian that reaches from Odessa up to Moldova to where the Transnistrian Republic is located. And again, you know, these are things that were not planned. Everybody then, says, well, you know, he always wanted to do X, Y, and Z. No, he didn't. He obviously wanted mm-hmm. to negotiate an end. He just wanted to make sure Ukraine was neutral and there were no NATO weapons in eastern Ukraine. Yeah. But now, so once they take all that territory, now we have a real problem because they're working on, I think they haven't yet, but they're working on bringing Moldova into NATO now. Uh, they, <laughs> they had resisted and didn't want to join, but now they do because they're afraid. And so now, yeah, I mean, this war, just like in America, this Russian war is a government program, right? It keeps building on itself, mission creep and this kind of thing. So now we could have, we're just setting this table for the next conflict a few years from now. Yeah. Well, perhaps, but I would, I would urge everybody to pay attention to the comments made over the last 24 hours by Mohammed El Aryan, who is probably one of the best, uh, analysts of the economy and the financial world and he's now talking about stagflation and something much worse than recession in the future potentially depression yeah and if you look at those things and you realize that we're on the brink of a real disaster here at home economically it leads you to question whether or not we can do much else other than tend to our own affairs i think the whole overseas operation by the neocons and their fellow travelers on the left, the globalists, uh, is going to be turned off, Scott. It'll be turned off because we can't afford it. We're going to have dramatic cuts in spending, and we're going to have to focus uh, on what's important here at home, whether we, whether the people in Washington like it or not. Yep. That's what Ron Paul always said. The empire is going to end, and it won't be because you listen to me. It'll just be because the economic conditions dictate it. We just can't afford it. That's right. Hmm. I think we're almost there. When I say almost, I think within months. Yeah. Well, as always, we used to joke about this 20 years ago. They're like, geez, I sure hope the economic collapse can save us from nuclear apocalypse. You know, it's a race of which disaster are we going to face first? And I'll go ahead and take the Great Depression, please. Yes, I I think you're right. And I think that's where we're headed. But at the end of the day, I I just would tell people to uh, pay attention to what happens and not so much to what people say. Yeah. Uh, remember that all of a sudden we left Iraq and we left in the middle of the night. <laughs> yep. Remember? Yep. 
Don't let the and, door hit you in the ass, I think is yeah, what they said. And look at Afghanistan. Yep. And what happened in Vietnam. It's the same sort of nonsense. And I think we're going to witness the same thing in Ukraine and Eastern Europe. I'd be surprised if e if the EU and NATO survived, to be blunt. Yeah. Well, you know what? When it comes to that, just real quick at the end here is uh, it's so important that the narrative has been, yeah, that's when we finally do the right thing and give it up. As humiliating as it is, as much as Americans don't like to be humiliated, Biden obviously botched how to withdraw from Afghanistan. You and I have talked about that. No question yeah. there. But getting yeah. out of Afghanistan was him finally doing the right thing. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, it's it's really too bad because there's so much kind of tough guy, macho stuff on the right about how, oh, you see our powers being weakened because we're being humiliated and all this, which is true. But it, the point needs to always be we shouldn't be getting into these messes in the first place. And most of this is power. We shouldn't be attempting to exercise in the first place either. And all those questions go begged. And then the problem is just that, you know, oh yeah, these Democrats make us look weak. And so now we need to double down and increase spending yeah. and be even tougher and pick a new fight with somebody else somewhere else. And whatever. well, Scott, these you people know? are never going to go completely away, but yeah. they can be removed from the stage for a while. Yeah. But then the American people have to pay a lot more attention to what people do with the power that they give them. Yep. And All that's right. Well, it hasn't happened. So, yeah. Well, the time is now and <laughs> no time like the present. That's so, right. Uh, I'll tell you what, man, I can't uh, tell you how much I appreciate your time on the show, Doug. Thank yeah. Well, just remember that uh, if you substitute the word Ukraine, or excuse me, the word, uh, yeah, the word uh, Russia for Ukraine, listen to what they accuse Russia of and then change the word to Ukraine, then you have a pretty clear picture. Yeah, sounds about right. Um, and 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 it's a bloodbath, too. It's a catastrophe for everybody all around. So Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Most well, of all for the Ukrainians. Right. Yeah, and you know what? I'm sorry, because I was thinking of this earlier, and I wanted to bring this up. Uh, it's a good place to end it, I guess. Back in 2014, John Mearsheimer said, America is leading Ukraine down the primrose path and they're going to get wrecked that's yes. what he said he's right dead on target yep all right thanks so much doug appreciate it same to you bye-bye all right you guys that is the great doug mcgregor read him at the american conservative magazine holding ground losing war the scott horton show anti-war radio can be heard on kpfk 90.7 fm in la APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.